0: You would never wear one of those. <laughs> never say never. It's good to be with you uh, this morning. I'm sure Pastor Nathan is glad to see me here this morning. The last time it was my turn to pray, I was sick, and uh, he had to break the emergency glass and pull out a prayer. But uh, it's good to be here with you this morning in the Lord's house, uh, worshiping. And I would invite you to kneel with me as we pray this morning, if you are able, as we go before the Lord. In his throne of grace. I want to read from Philippians chapter three. I want you. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And so somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect. But I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, others, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Therefore, my brothers, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, that is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. Father, I pray that you would make it our prayer today to want to know Christ, to know the power of your resurrection, the power to conquer sin and death, to conquer the fear of this world, the power to live under Christ. I pray that you would help us to know the fellowship of your suffering, to know the particular love that you have for your people that motivates you to endure the sufferings and and humiliations and temptations of this world to present the perfect sacrifice on the cross on our behalf. To know that our citizenship is in heaven, that we have been adopted and called your sons and daughters, that we are no longer bound by the sins that so easily entangle us, that we are your royal ambassadors here and now for our heavenly king. To know and eagerly await your return, to redeem your people, and to transform our lowly bodies to be like your glorious body. This is our hope, that is our desire, to one day join the innumerable throng before your throne and worship worship you. Father, I pray that this knowledge would not simply be head knowledge, but would take hold of our lives and cause us to press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of for us. That this knowledge would daily transform our hearts and minds that we would forget what is behind this earthly life and the strain towards what is ahead. That our eyes would be fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And that we would press on toward the goal to win the prize for which you have called us heavenward. Father, that this would be how we stand firm now, how we stand firm in the face of temptation when doubts arise when our health fails us, when we face uncertainties in our future, when loved ones disappoint us, when the world around us seems to be crazy and out of control. Father, we also stand firm knowing that you promise to hear and answer our prayers. We stand firm knowing that you are sovereign and know all of our needs before they are spoken. Secure in this knowledge, Father, we lift our petitions to you for those things in accordance with your will. Father, we pray for our president and for our local and national leaders, that you would give them wisdom and grace to govern wisely and in accordance with your law. Father, we pray for those serving abroad in our military. We pray that you would protect them, that you would watch over them and keep them safe. Father, as we come closer to home, we pray for Redeemer and the many ministries that you have blessed us with the opportunity to be a part of. Father, we pray for our mission team as they prepare to go to Juarez. We pray that you would bring all the details together for them pray that they would prepare well and that they would be well equipped when they arrive in Juarez to minister to the saints there. Father, we pray for our women's ministries as they prepare for a wonderful fall retreat and as they minister to the uh, women here on a weekly basis through Bible studies and just encouragement. Father, I pray that uh, our women would be lifted up and encouraged to serve you in greater ways. We pray for our men's group and for the men's retreat coming up in April. That the preparations for that would go well and that our men would be challenged to live lives of godly men godly leaders in their home and in their places of work father we pray for westminster christian academy as we move forward uh, with the high school phase father i pray that you would bring us the children that you have prepared for us to minister to and for their families i pray father that you would continue to make straight the the path for that uh, for the high school to move forward Father, I pray that as we go forward this morning in worship, that you would be with your servant as he brings your word this morning. I pray that you would watch over and protect uh, the gospel as it goes forward and that you would uh, take it and place it in each of our hearts in a way that makes us different as a result of our encounter with your word today. In Christ's name, amen. I'd like to ask the ushers to come and receive the Lord's tithe and our love offerings. Let's pray. Father, you're a great giver. You are the father of Lights, from whom all good and perfect things flow down. And so, Lord, we have been blessed by your giving to us more than we need. And Lord, we give back to you out of the requirement, but out of love, out of grateful hearts. Lord, you love a cheerful giver and we give with our hearts full of joy. Lord, we pray your special blessing on the gifts given. Multiply them and use them for the gospel growth of your kingdom in Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.
1: Amen. Please be seated. Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Hosea once again this, this morning. It is good to be back, and I certainly am grateful for my brother Nathan and his giftedness and ability to rise to the occasion on Saturday afternoon to be able to prepare and preach. And I've preached sick before, but I was really sick last week. One of those kind of barely could stand up without getting dizzy kind of sick. I know you were well fed. Praise God for my brother. Hosea 9 is in the middle of a lengthy diatribe from the prophet concerning the judgment of God upon God's people. Now, you will recall that Hosea is ministering uh, to the northern kingdom. The northern kingdom is really uh, its existence is a form of discipline itself in that God uh, had the division of the kingdom happen, uh, the southern kingdom maintaining the covenant promises, the northern kingdom of the ten tribes, the lost tribes we refer to them now as, uh, the northern kingdom called Israel or called Ephraim Jerusalem sometimes uh, referred to uh, as a group of people who were defiant they had made alliances with other nations had worshipped other gods now this is the problem for both kingdoms no doubt but the northern kingdom succumbed to this much sooner than the southern kingdom did and in the northern kingdom these alliances made the, the kingdom of Israel very, very rich they were comfortable. Uh, their alliances with Assyria and with Egypt from years before uh, made them comfortable. They took in the things of those nations and they loved their prosperity. They loved their sensuality as well and the expressions thereof. Uh, they were syncretistic. They were pluralistic. That means that they took all forms of religion and put them together and said, they're all good. Uh, we'll take Baal. We'll take Asherah. We'll take the God Yahweh. We'll take them all and That's who we are in the northern kingdom. And Hosea is raised up by God to preach a message of repentance, to turn back to the God of of Israel, Yahweh. Now, I think there are two reasons why the modern church doesn't spend a lot of time in the prophets. Now, we spend enough time to come up with, like, movies about the end times, or take clips or portions out of the prophets that we want to apply, but rarely do we go through the prophetical books, do we? I think there's two main reasons for this, and it's important for us to note as we study chapter 9, which is a tough chapter. I think the first reason is that we are living in a time of unprecedented, radical individualism. In other words, we want to hear the message for me and and how it helps me. We don't think in corporate terms anymore, at least not in America. I mean, we're very individualistic. We have our rights. But recognize that the prophets are written in a corporate way. In fact, if you would look at chapter 9, Fifty-three times the people are referred to in a collective way, them, they, their, all, the people. So it's a corporate message of judgment. And many times we want to disassociate ourselves with the corporate entity we're part of and say, hey, you have to judge me, God, just based on my individuality. Well, there's no doubt that God saves individuals. But he saves individuals to build a spiritual building. You're a spiritual stone that goes into a spiritual building, which is the corporate church. And so we can't escape the corporate focus God has, even in redemption, to save a people for himself. But I think we pass over the message of the prophets often because we're so keyed in on individual messages, and the prophetic message is very corporate. The second reason why I think that we don't hear many messages from the prophets today is because we kind of live in this time of polyanism. You know what that is? Pollyanna thinking pollyanna describes the tendency for people to agree with positive statements describing them in only positive statements. It's sometimes called positivity bias. I think we have an appetite, even in the church, to only hear the positive stuff. Only the warm stuff, right? As if we, there is no warmth that comes from the justice of God. In fact, you'll get a kick out of this. A couple months ago, I was getting my hair cut, and the lady who was cutting my hair asked me what I did, and I told her I was a pastor, and I was praying for an opportunity to share Christ. I do every time I have a chance to talk with someone who I don't know, you know I don't know who, where their faith is, who they are in Christ or if they are or not. And so I really felt like it was an answer to prayer. She asked me who I, what, who I was, and sometimes people don't say anything to you. You know, they just kind of cut your hair and you go. So, well, I'm a pastor, and I tried to explain. She goes, oh, you're a pastor. Do you have your tickets for Joel Osteen? I said, my tickets? I mean, I didn't even know you had to buy tickets to go hear a preacher. And apparently he was here a couple weeks ago. And this is a couple months ago. She was getting ready to buy her tickets because they'd be sold out, according to her. And so you can only imagine. I'm, I sat there. Oh, wow. I said, no, I didn't even know he was coming. I, I didn't know. And she goes, well, I'm getting, I'm going to, having you here reminds me I need to call him. I thought, that's great. I remind you of Joel Osteen. And I said, uh, well, what, why, why are you interested in going? She goes, and this is exactly what she said. True story. She said, He's a feel-good pastor, and I need to feel good right now. Now, I don't want to knock that, because I think she was hurting. And as she started to talk to me about her situation, her personal situation, there was a lot of pain there. Uh, But her view of religion and her view of the message she would get would be, it just would make her feel good. Because she doesn't want to hear anything out, Just, just make me feel good. She was genuine in what she said. I think that kind of mindset pervades even the church, and so... Studying the prophets and some of the hard language of the prophets its just something people don't want to hear. Kind of like the kid who said, me, 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 and they don't want to hear. I don't want to hear. Brothers and sisters, we have to hear. And I think that the beauty of the gospel, which is a positive message of our sins being forgiven, it bears with it the truth that we have sin. Uh, But let us not read any portion of scripture without always seeing the antidote is met fully and completely in Christ. That's why the prophet preaches. Because ultimately, God is going to redeem these people. God is going to fulfill his work by bringing the Gentiles in. Yes, these people are going to lose their identity. These people are going to be the lost tribes. But the fulfillment is you and I, as he calls people from the the nations to be his people, His special people. Ultimately, the message still becomes redemption. But we must see it for what it says, to be true to God's word and to be fully blessed by his whole counsel. Hear now God's word, Hosea chapter 9. Rejoice not, O Israel, exult not like the peoples, for you have played the whore, forsaking your God. You have loved the prostitutes' wages on all flesh threshing floors. Threshing floor and wine vat shall not feed them, and the new wine shall fail them. They shall not remain in the land of the Lord, but Ephraim shall return to Egypt, and they shall eat unclean food in Assyria. They shall not pour drink offerings of wine to the Lord, and their sacrifices shall not please him. It shall be like mourners' bread to them. All who eat of it shall be defiled, for their bread shall be for their hunger only. It shall not come to the house of the Lord. What will you do on the day of the appointed festival? And on the day of the feast of the Lord. For behold, they are going away from destruction. But Egypt shall gather them. Memphis shall bury them. Nettles shall possess their precious things of silver. Thorns shall be in their tents. The days of punishment have come and the days of recompense have come. Israel shall know it. The prophet is a fool. The man of the spirit is mad because of your great iniquity and great hatred. The prophet is the watchman of Ephraim with my God. Yet a fouler snare is on all his ways, in hatred in the house of his God. They have deeply corrupted themselves as in the days of Gibeah. He will remember their iniquity. He will punish their sins. Like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel. Like the first fruit in the fig tree in its first season, I saw your fathers. But they came to Baal pure and consecrated themselves as the thing of shame, and because, became detestable like the thing they loved. Ephraim's glory shall fly away like a bird. No birth, no pregnancy, no conception. Even if they bring up children, I will bereave them till none is left. Woe to them when I depart from them. Ephraim, as I have seen, was like a young palm planted in the meadow. But Ephraim must lead his children out to slaughter. Give them, O Lord. What will you give? Give them a a miscarrying womb and dry breasts. Every evil of theirs is in Gilgal. There I began to hate them. Because of the wickedness of of their deeds, I will drive them out of my house. I will love them no more. All their princes are rebels. Ephraim is stricken. Their root is dried up. They shall bear no fruit, even though they give birth. I will put their beloved children to death. My God will reject them, because they have not listened to him. They shall be wanderers among the nations. Let us pray. Lord, we hear this message of your judgment coming upon people who rejected you, who knew you not. And Lord, I pray that you would give us clarity about knowing you today. Give us security in knowing you in Christ as a result of what we see here, the true justice that you exact. Thank you, Lord, for Christ, for he is our refuge, our strength. He's our savior. Because of him, we know that we have had our sins forgiven and the punishment was put on him. But Lord, help us to be rekindled again in our love for you and our knowledge of you in Christ. And I pray that you would receive all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Obviously, the people of God had a serious problem in Hosea's day. A Pollyanna reading of this book is next to impossible. So I ask you this question personally for a moment as we consider a corporate message. Personally, I ask every one of you, do you know God in Christ? You see, the problem for the people at root was that they did not know God in Christ. The sins that Hosea points out, that's the symptom of the problem. The sins are serious, they're important, but the reason, the cause for the sins was a lack of knowledge of God In Christ, in the Redeemer, God was sent. Have you been convinced? Have you become convinced that the Bible is God's word, his testimony about Christ? Have you come to see that God is sovereign in his holy word? Have you come to see that we are sinners, that you are a sinner in need of a Savior, and the Savior is revealed in Scripture? Do you know God like that? Because that's the only way to really know God. To have access to God is to have our sins removed. The dividing wall of separation taken away. Now we have access to God the Father through the blood of God the Son. Do you know God in Christ? Do you believe that in Christ you have total acceptance with the Father? Then you have a relationship with God because he is your Father now through Christ. J.I. Packer said it well in his wonderful book, Knowing God. He said, what was is and always will be the true priority for every human being that is learning to know God in Christ. This is the starting point to understand what went awry here and also to appreciate what we have in God now. There are many blessings that come from knowing God. Think of some of the blessings, if you haven't already. First of all, when you know God in Christ, God provides for your needs. I'm not saying he makes you rich. I'm not saying he makes you prosper in the sense of prosperity as we think of it. But he does provide for your needs. That's what he does for his children. That's the benefit of knowing the true and living God. Secondly, God makes us part of his church. The church is a distinct body. In all its warts and all its faults, it's a distinct called-out group that God places you in. You're not just out there as a lone ranger Christian. You are placed in the church. You're part of something something that God is building, Jesus says, I will build my church. That's a blessing from knowing God. There's another blessing that comes from knowing God in Christ. He gives us a sense of joy, a sense of desire to worship him. What brought you here, hopefully, was a desire to come together with the church to worship God because you think he's worth it, because you think he deserves it. God placed that in you. That's not something you just conjure up. That's a blessing from knowing God. When you know God in Christ, you want to worship him. How about another blessing? God actually gives us a true humility, not a false one where you just kind of talk down about yourself so that other people will say, oh, no, that's not true. No, a true humility, a brokenness that makes you able to repent before God for your sin. You don't make excuses for it when you hear sin spoken of. You recognize your own part in that, and you receive that, and you say, God, forgive me for this. That's a blessing that comes from knowing God, that he gives you a humility that allows you to repent. He gives you repentance for sin. That's a great gift that God gives those who know him. You don't get perfection in your actions when you come to know God. You get a reality about your actions when you come to know God that helps you to change. That's a blessing from knowing God. But also, God gives you a taste for his word. Many of you can identify the time you came to Christ. Uh, Some of you have always known Jesus. But for the believer, the one who knows God in Christ there's a certain hunger about what is contained in the Word of God that you consistently have. Now, we can be lazy, we can put it off, but I think when you are in the quietness of your heart and thinking about it, you have a hunger for what God has to say, what He says is true. That's a blessing from knowing God. Corporately, though, there's a blessing that comes from a people that know God. This church, hopefully, is given the blessing of having an impact on the culture around us. Uh, You... Collectively, make a statement to the world as you gather here and as we go about our mission and individually as you go into your places of work and life, you have a witness that you bear for the church. This is a blessing that comes from knowing God. An identity as the church impacting the world. Finally, I would also say that God blesses his church and his families with a generational strength. I hope none of you think that the end all of your faith is you sitting here right here today. I hope the little ones that are sitting around you are part of your vision. That the next generation's faith, the next generation's spiritual strength, that's an indicator of how strong the spiritual state is of the church today. Because God blesses generations. In fact, one of the crucial points of the Abrahamic Covenant was to make your children believe. And to give children strength. And so generation after generation is given strength. That's a blessing from a people who know their God. Their children are made to know their God. And their children, and it's just this generational strength. And when you look at generations broken, you can see that there is a lack of faithfulness or a lack of real knowledge of God somewhere that seems to break the chain. But one of the great benefits that come from knowing God in Christ is God blessing his church and the families therein with a generational strength. Now, a common question is asked when we think of people in Hosea's day. Did believers in the Old Testament... Know God in the same way that we know God. We know that the people in Hosea's day did not know God based on what it said. In chapter 4, there is no faithfulness or steadfast love, no knowledge of God in the land. But did they know God the same way? And I would say to you, yes, they knew God the same way. They knew God by having faith in God's Messiah, Christ, who was pictured in the sacrificial system throughout all their festivals and feasts and in their teaching, forecasting. They looked ahead to the one who would pay for their sins. We look back at the one who paid for our sins. But faith in the person of Christ is the same thing that has always saved anybody. And so, yes, they had a personal relationship with God through Christ. Their vision of Christ was a bit foggier and dimmer than ours. But it was still a personal relationship. It wasn't just some out there, not exactly sure I'll go through this this ritual and somehow hope that I end up all right. It was more personal than that. But that had been lost in their day and in their generation. And the root problem for all that we see being addressed in Hosea is that the people did not know God. In verse 6 of chapter 4, it says, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge because they have rejected knowledge. Knowledge about God. So that brings us to chapter 9 as God is laying out uh, the consequences of this corporate Adultery. this corporate movement away from devotion to God and into the other nations, into other gods, to other cultures. We learn that the blessings that come with being God's redeemed people, which I just laid out for you, those blessings are lost when the church forsakes God to marry other gods. To put it more specifically, the blessings that come from knowing God in Christ are lost when we forsake God to marry other gods. Let's look at how this unfolds, starting at verse 1. Verse 1 of our text says, Rejoice not, O Israel, exalt not like the peoples, or the other peoples. For you have played the whore, forsaking your God. So this indictment, this restatement of what the problem is, they left the God of Yahweh and married other gods. And the first thing that is lost as a result of this unfaithfulness is the loss of material blessing. God provides for the needs of his children. This is one of the first things, the security that is lost when we marry other gods. Look at the second part of verse 1 again. You have loved a prostitute's wages on all threshing floors. Threshing floors, that is the place where the grain is threshed out and it's kind of the picture of the final successful harvest. What happens in the threshing floor, that's where all the final harvest is brought and it's kind of uh, picturesque of the prosperity of the nation when the threshing floors are always active and, and there's lots of grain being stored. But here it's saying that that, that area, that place, you have loved the prostitutes' wages on all threshing floors. They're guilty of selling themselves for prosperity. This picture of a prosperous harvest is prostituted. No trust in God for material provision, but rather trust in self and others to provide. They are going to lose this security that they think they have earned. Verse 2 says, Threshing floor and wine vat shall not feed them. And the new wine shall fail them. In other words, all this prosperity they've been basking in, all the stuff they've had, God's going to take it away from them as discipline. Verse 3, They shall not remain in the land of the Lord, but Ephraim shall return to Egypt, and they shall eat unclean, unclean food in Assyria. God had done all this to bring them out of Egypt, to put them in the land of milk and honey that had all that fruitfulness where they can grow all this grain and grapes. And he's going to take them out of that land so they can no longer grow this stuff. They bask in it now, but they will have it removed from them. And they'll go back to Egypt, figuratively referring to slavery or to captivity, to occupation. Knowing God, my brothers and sisters, means that your needs will be met. Now, it's difficult for us today because we think of our needs in terms of wants mostly because we are such a prosperous land. Praise God for that. But you have to admit that normally if we would write out what our needs are, most of us will write wants. Uh, Talk to any American who does not think uh, that a sizable savings account ought to be something you need. Now, I think it's wise. But that's really not a need. The prayer is give us this day our daily bread. It's a daily dependence. Uh, storing and so forth have their purpose, and it can be part of wisdom to, to consider future. Don't get me wrong. But when you trust in the future for what you're doing today, that is a trust that's misplaced. They would lose the security that they had been basking in as God would take it away. One of the blessings that's taken when we, seek, we cease to know God. It doesn't end there, though. There's a loss of corporate identity. You remember that one of the blessings of knowing God is that we're part of his church. His distinct, called-out body. We belong somewhere. But look what happens in verse 3. They shall not remain in the land of the Lord, but Ephraim shall return to Egypt, and they shall eat unclean food in Assyria. They're going to lose their distinctive corporate identity. People will no longer look at them and say, hey, they're one of the people of God. In fact, of the ten tribes of Israel, how many people do you know belong to those tribes? Now, a lot of people will claim they come from the ten tribes. The Kurds in northern Iraq say they come from the lost tribes of Israel. But we don't really know of any anymore that exists. Uh, Who's the last Zebulunite you've met? Uh, Anyone here at Medan, is the Calrite before? How many Danites do you know? Those are all the lost tribes. You don't know them anymore because God stripped them of their identity. The only way they have entrance back into the identifiable people of God is through the church. And that's us, the Gentiles. Some of us may come from the lost tribe. We don't even know. But the identifying feature that made them stand out to the nations in this day, that was part of the discipline It was taken away from them. They were just like everybody else now. No one looked at them with any kind of fear about their God. They were just one of them. No longer distinguishable. Look at verse 6 of chapter 9. For behold, they are going away from destruction. But Egypt shall gather them. Memphis shall bury them. Nettles shall possess their precious things of silver. Thorns shall be in their tents. So they'll have no distinctiveness anymore. Memphis is a city in Egypt. So it's figuratively a reference to their captivity. No longer their own. Nettles are covered with tiny, nearly invisible, stinging little hairs that produce an intense, stinging pain. at the plants. Then, if you get ripped up by these nettles, they have something in them that will cause an irritation to your skin. And they're just known in this part of the world, you could probably think of something like it here, that leaves an ongoing infection after you've been stabbed by one. Well, it says here that nettles shall possess their precious things of silver. So you see, you get this picture of this wasteland with these thorns and silver on the bottom. And if you want to grab down to get that thing you trust in so much, you can't because it tears your hand up. God's going to take it away. He's going to take away your corporate identity. The things that you had that blessed you will no longer identify you. Thorns will be in their tents. In other words, they will not be able to occupy their own homes anymore. They'll lose their corporate identity. Verse 17, at the last verse of the chapter says, My God will reject them because they have not listened to him. They shall be wanderers among the nations. So they're among the nations with no home, no identity, no distinguishing feature, no more ability to say, we are the people of God. Brothers and sisters, the distinctiveness of the church is such a blessing. It's such a blessing. It it identifies the church, even before we say a word, to know that the church is here. I remember going to one of my son's soccer games at, uh, that was at the school behind us, Blue Valley School. And we were sitting on the sidelines, and all the kids on Nicholas's team were uh, both members of the church here and school kids that went to Westminster. And we were sitting side by side with uh, the team, and I was helping to coach Nicholas' team, and I was next to the other coach. And as we're playing, you could not escape the steeple of the church. I mean, everyone there would look and see the steeple of our church, and it had just gone up. This is right in the early fall. And I know and you know that the church is not just the steeple. We'd always been a church long before we had the steeple. But there's something distinguishable to the community when they see that, and they want to know, what is that? And more than one time at these games, I would hear people see it, because it's so distinct and it rises above everything. What is that? Who is that? And I'd hear parents explain to those people who that's Redeemer. Oh, where are they at? And they would start hearing people explain. I'd have to hardly say anything. It's just a sense in which that there was an identifying feature. People look to the church. And you know, when crisis happens, they don't go to Dr. Phil, ultimately. The church is where people go. People come to this place on a regular basis, knocking on the door, asking for help. Because it's the church. There's something identifiable about it, something they should be able to go to, something distinguishable about it. That's the blessing of God, that he gives us an identity. We pray for him to give us faithfulness to handle that identity. But the loss of corporate identity is one of the many disciplines that come. I love the great hymn by Johnson. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is his new creation by water and the word. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her, and for her life he died. The church is distinguished by the Messiah who buys her. And we go forth with that identity, or we do not, depending on if we know God. There's more, though, that we see here. Look at verse 4 and verse 5, where you see the loss of genuine, distinctive worship. This is certainly connected to the loss of identity as the church. But verse 4 and verse 5 rails against that blessing that God gives us a sense of joy in worshiping him and meeting with him. Verse 4 says, They shall not pour drink offerings of wine to the Lord. They won't worship, in other words. And their sacrifices shall not please him. It shall be like a mourner's bread to them. All who eat of it shall be defiled, for their bread shall be for their hunger only. It shall not come to the house of the Lord. In other words, the bread they would use uh, in Passover, they wouldn't even have enough to Observe that, and they would just have to eat the bread they had because they would have lost so much materially that their identity now is stripped as a, an entity, and now their identity as worshipers is taken away from them, too. They have no temple, they have no place to go to worship. They're among the nations, they're kind of vagabonds spiritually, with no ability to worship God. The loss of genuine, distinctive worship. Verse 5 What will you do on the day of appointed festival and on the day of the feast of the Lord? It's so sad. Uh, the thing that they had been neglecting they will actually long for when they've been taken out of it for a while but when they want to go back and do it they won't be able to Uh, imagine for a moment if something would happen where it would be made illegal to worship on Sunday I bet you the lackluster way most of us treat the Sabbath would change very quickly if you weren't allowed to go to church on Sunday like so many of our brothers and sisters in other places all of a sudden you can't do the thing that you didn't do before but now because you can't do it you recognize how important it was This happens here. They've neglected God for so long. God will take them out of their identity, take them out of their distinguishing features, and now they'll be in a place where they can't even worship, even if they wanted to. The loss of genuine, distinctive worship. No praise, no scripture reading, no opportunity to give unto the Lord, no time for prayer in the body of believers, no sacraments, no confession, and no hearing of words of assurance taken from them. That's not all, though. There's a loss of repentance that you can see in verse 7. The days of punishment have come. The days of recompense have come. Israel shall know it. The prophet is a fool. The man of the spirit is mad because of your great iniquity and great hatred. God gives people who know him in Christ a humility. It's a good kind of brokenness before him, a repentance. But that's clearly lacking in people who do not know him. In fact, they hear the prophet in verse 7 and think of him as a fool. The one speaking the word of God they think is a fool. The man of the spirit is mad. He's crazy. Remember, the prophet is sent by God to call us to repentance. And they think he's a fool. They think of him as crazy, insane. Down in verse 17, it says, My God will reject them because they have not listened to him. In other words, they have not listened to the message of the prophet, which is to repent, so God will reject them. You know, when people minister in robes and they mock the clear teaching of Scripture on a regular basis, week in and week out, under the guise of the church, can we not see that God and the knowledge of God has departed from that place. Why acceptance of all forms of immorality in our day? Why the defense from supposed churches? Because there is a loss of repentance among people who were once called gods. And God is the only one who can give us a restoration of this. And we see that this loss of repentance in the day of Hosea is an indicator of a people who no longer know God. It leads into the next point though, that there is a loss for the Word of God. There's no repentance and there's no, <coughs> excuse me, hunger for the Word of God. Verse 7 says, The days of punishment have come, the days of recompense have come, Israel shall know it, the prophet is a fool. It's not just that they don't listen to the message, they think the messenger himself, The voice piece of God, the mouthpiece from God, the prophet, he himself is a fool, meaning that God's word is foolish. That's what's said. There's a lack of tolerance for the word of God. There's a lack of hunger for the word of God. They don't want to hear it. They don't want to be confronted with their need to change. They're satisfied with their own wisdom. When we know God, when you come to know God, you want to know the truth even when it hurts. In fact, you usually know it's probably going to hurt but you know you need it. That's why you open it. And even as believers, you know, some of the reasons why we resist at times is because we know what God's going to tell us. But there's something soothing about finally getting that cure. How many people, without a show of hands, are sick for a while and just never go to the doctor because they know what the doctor's going to tell them? First of all, the doctor's going to make you get on the scale, right? None of us want that. Can't we just go in and give me some drugs. I don't need to, you don't have to check my blood pressure or my weight. Okay? So we don't go. When we put it off, we put it off. Finally, things get so bad, someone gets us to go, and we go, and we get that medicine, and we get that uh, diagnosis, and we get better, and it feels so good to have addressed the problem and met it with a cure. Very, very similarly is sin. We, we, we put it off, we put it off, and when we see it, when we're confronted with it, finally it's like we're set free. Don't justify it for me, just tell me the truth. That's what the people of God ultimately want to know doesn't stop there, though. In verse 11, there's a loss of corporate growth and effect. See what happens to them as they lose their distinguishing feature. Verse 11 says, Ephraim's glory shall fly away like a bird. No birth, no pregnancy, no conception. In other words, they will not multiply. They will not have lasting impact and effect. Uh, The blessing that God gives this church and his people to have an impact on the culture, to be a witness in the culture, it'll be taken away. Their glory will depart. And they will no longer have that impact. My God will reject them because they have not listened to them. They shall be wanderers among the nations. Salt has to have saltiness. And when it loses its saltiness, when it becomes like the world, God takes its glory away and doesn't doesn't let it multiply. We see this also in the final point, the loss of heritage. Remember, God blesses his church and families therein with a generational strength. But what happens in this loss of heritage in vivid, really brutal terms in verse 11 down to verse 16 is the loss of heritage. Uh, In other words, their children will be born, but they will be taken away. Uh, Remember, the, the mortality rate was extremely high in these days among all the nations. You recall that when Israel was in Egypt in captivity, God gave Israel supernatural mortality rates. In other words, most of the babies lived and they had multiple babies. And to the point where before Egypt knew it, Israel had grown to two million people. And remember some of the midwives of Egypt would say, these Israelite women have babies so fast we can't even kill them if you wanted us to, Pharaoh. They have their babies so quickly. That's literally what happened. Well, God removes that kind of a blessing and he turns the people away from fruitfulness. And like the rest of the nations, no doubt, they are no longer able to produce at the rate that they had before. And it really ends up being a spiritual issue. Because the generation of faithfulness does not go on. The great promise of Abraham to multiply their children in the faith is taken from this people. They lose their heritage. This is what happens ultimately when people cease to know God. You know, I was looking at the mainline statistics in our country, the mainline Protestant denominations that way back when used to be faithful and have long since turned away In particular, our own namesake, the Presbyterian Church in the United States, the liberal strand of the Presbyterians in this country, has gone from 4 million members in 1967, the exact year they ultimately went against biblical authority. So they've been blessed by losing 2 million people since that time. They've lost 2 million people for a lack of faithfulness. Now, I'm not saying that church growth is all there is to it, but church death ought to tell us something, too. They lost their heritage Because they squandered it. They gave it away. Said it really didn't matter about the specifics. They ceased to know God at a leadership level. These are important warnings to us because none of us should consider ourselves any better than the last generation. It's only the dependence we have upon Christ now that continues to bless us for the future. It's a gift from him itself. It's all these blessings of knowing God, continually lived out, applied, and appreciated, that keep us and guard us from what we have seen here. Please, on this ending note, remember that the blessing you have from knowing God in Christ is that He provides for your needs. He makes you part of this church. You're not just out there alone. He gives you a sense of joy in coming to worship Him and bow down before Him. He gives you a humility that gives you repentance, that you recognize your sin and your need of a Savior. Gives us a taste for His Word. Ongoing taste and desire for truth. He blesses us to have an impact on the culture around us, makes us salty, and he blesses us and our families with generational strength. To God be the glory for this. Let us pray. Lord, thank you for your promises, for the benefits and blessings that come from knowing you in Christ. But we confess that there is nothing we have done to earn this this is your great grace bestowed upon us. Make us humble, Lord. Make us consistently dependent on the finished work of Christ and the cross. And Lord, I pray that you would make your name glorious among the nations as you work to change each of us individually, but also by the church you are building,
0: one spiritual stone at a time. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.